All right. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jamie Keach here from the Resource Insider Podcast, Quarantine Edition. Uh, I think we're on week seven now. and We've talked to some great guests over the last seven weeks, and today is no exception. We have a gentleman that I've been planning to talk to for several weeks now. His name is Adrian Day, and he is the founder and the chief investment officer of Adrian Day Asset Management. Uh, an investment firm uh, that's heavily focused on the natural resource sector, particularly gold. And today we're going to talk to Adrian about everything that's been going on in the world, how he's um, managing the changes uh, in the gold space uh, as a result of COVID-19 and what we can expect down the road. Uh, it's just going to be me on video today. Adrian's called in, but we are going to go through some of the slides he's put together for this conversation. So, Adrian, without further ado, thank you very much for taking the time to chat today. Well, thank you very much, Jamie, for inviting me. My pleasure. Now, uh, I think it, what's best for those of uh, our listeners who haven't heard of you and what you do, can you give us the overview of what Adrian Day Asset Management is and what you guys are focused on? Sure. You mean there's actually somebody who hasn't heard of me? <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe only well, one my... or two, but for my own sake. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> but yeah, my, my, name, my name's Adrian Day. I'm from London, England, graduated law school of economics. My background is actually more in um, uh, uh, economics and politics, actually. I studied political history at school and started writing, writing on economic policy. Uh, and it was only after I came to this country that econ to the United States that um, economic policy kind of morphed into investments. I was the editor of, a, of an investment publication, and you know I started I was editing it, but obviously I learned a lot by osmosis uh, talking to the talking to the authors and, and uh, the people that knew what they were talking about. So I learned uh, really on the go, if you like, and. You know, I started Adrian Day Asset Management in 1991, uh, so a while ago, before some of you were born, no doubt. Um, and, you know, I don't want to sound too sort of um, uh, twee about this, but the reason I started the asset management, frankly, was because when I was writing I, on investments, I used to get a lot of people say, hey, do you manage money? And no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a writer. But people would tell me what they had done with my recommendations. And um, I'm not for one second going to suggest that all my recommendations were good, far from it. But it was very, very frustrating to me to get a letter from a 70-year-old lady who had put half of her savings into some penny stock in Australia because you said it, because it sounded so good, right? Or people who lost money on something because, well, I know you told us to sell it, but I really didn't want to sell it. It was doing so well. And so I sort of thought, you know, there's obviously people who, for whatever reason, they're busy on other things, they're not experienced, who are managing to turn you know, some good recommendations into desires for themselves. And so I really started um, just to help the people that were, were writing, uh, that, yeah. that I was writing for. But it kind of became the business after a while. Uh, so I've been doing it since 1991. 
And we are not exclusively resource, as you mentioned. The money management firm deals with, you know, global markets. And to me, global yes. means everything. It means U.S. and foreign. It means stocks and bonds and currencies. And you know, we invest in pretty much anything and everything that I think I understand. So I don't do biotech or technology. You'll be surprised to learn or social media companies or, or, or anything like that because either I, either I don't have the skill set to understand it or, or I, I don't have the temperament to get it. You know, like Facebook, I don't get. And mm. I think it's important when you invest in something that you actually, I'm a fundamental investor, I'm a long-term investor. I think it's important that you actually have some understanding of the end product. You know, so I am going to be very, very slow to invest in Starbucks because I think that coffee is awful. That's that's a sort of maybe maybe that's not quite accurate. But I'm not going to invest in Facebook because I don't get it. And you know, biotech. You know, there's so many. You know, biotech's a bit like exploration. You know, you've got to be involved in it full on and a hundred percent to know all the competitive players right. and what products are more advanced than other products. And, and in fact, in biotech, it's even worse than exploration because you can have two exploration companies that both make a discovery and both bring mines into production. But with biotech, if they're both chasing after the same drug, well, one's a winner and one's second. Right. So anyway, I don't do that. So I invest in what, what I know. And we are market, market cap agnostic. Uh, you know, Nestle is, is one of the companies we've held the longest time. I bought it in 1991. We still own it. Um, and yet I'll also buy companies. I mean, we have companies in the portfolio that are, you know, 50 million, 20 million, and, and, and even less. So market cap agnostic, country ag and market agnostic. But obviously you put some kind of risk premium on, I'll just say Brazil over Switzerland, or on a $5 million company over a $5 billion company. You have to adjust right. for the sort of risk involved, but other than that, we'll, we'll buy anything. And as I, just one last thing, we are long-term, I think three things, long-term value and global. All of those things are, are really important to me. At different times in our history, We've had as much as 20% in Hong Kong, and I don't think we've ever been completely out of the U.S. market because that's where most of our clients are, but uh, certainly we've been under 10% in the U.S. at different times. Um, so that's global. Long-term, as I mentioned, Nestle, which we bought in 1991, we still own. Franklin Nevada would be another example. I first bought that when it did its original IPO in 1995, we held it till it merged with Newmont, and then we bought it again when it was spun off. So long-term, we'll hold, if a company, you know, my, I'll stop talking in a second, my greatest, uh, my greatest um, aim and where I get the greatest reward is finding a really great company with a good balance sheet, good management, that is executing on its plan that we can hold for a long time. I get, I get much greater pleasure out of holding a company for a long time than I do out of, you know, 
buying something and selling the next day for a 30% profit. Um, right. So we're always looking for good companies. And then resources is something where we have a specialty. So we manage Europe Pacific Gold Fund. And then we also have a lot of dedicated gold accounts. Um, but we're not, we're not, I'm a generalist rather than a specialist. I see. And of your overall portfolio, how, how big of a portion would you say resources make, makes up? And we can talk about all resources, well, we, here, we, everything we, from mining to forestry or, or what have you. Yeah, well, we do have resources in the global accounts. And right now we have a very high allocation to gold, less mm -hmm. of a big allocation to other resources. But I'm thinking of, of, our, entire, of our entire money. Um, we probably have about oh, 40% in, in resources at the moment. So has that been typical throughout the, the life of Adrian Day Asset Management? You know, you've been at this for almost 30 um, years now. Has there always been that major focus yeah. on resources? Yeah, no, there has, there has. Um, now, some of that money is, that's not 40% of global accounts, right? Because some mm -hmm. are dedicated gold accounts. I think so, because the very first investment I made as a chubby little 11-year-old um, English schoolboy in short pants was a gold Britannia coin. Um, and I, I remember to this day walking into the shop in the Strand, Brinks and Company, walking into the shop in the Strand, and uh, this little chubby schoolboy did not get a particularly warm welcome. But um, <laughs> I told him I wanted to, I wanted to buy a gold coin. And do you know how much they cost, Sonny? Yes, sir. And I pulled out my wad of banknotes. So, yeah, so that was the very first investment I, I made. And, I, and, and gold, when I was doing political history, I was at the London School of Economics, so there was a pretty heavy emphasis on economic history. And, um, you know, I, I, I was a specialist in the 19th century, if you can be a specialist in the whole century. And so obviously that was, a, that was the gold standard's greatest, uh, greatest triumph. And, you know, the gold standard was really responsible, partly responsible for the enormous growth in wealth we had in that century. So, you know, I got, to un I got to understand the gold standard, appreciate the gold standard. And so gold became, you know, gold, gold was in my life fairly early, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. I know, I guess it was just a small step from, from the political theory of the gold standard wanting to own some gold to wanting to own some gold stocks. So do you still have that gold coin today? Uh, well, don't tell the IRS. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, so something I wanted to talk to you about today, Adrian, in particular, is things have been changing uh, what feels like very rapidly over the last month or so. Uh, there's obviously a lot of ambiguity in the world, a lot of volatility in the markets. And I think it's worth uh, diving into sort of what you see happening here, particularly in the resource space, particularly in the gold space, and what investors who are interested in this sector uh, should be thinking about and can expect over the coming months and years. Um, would this be a good time for me to pull up your slideshow, would you say? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, first of all, I'm a generalist, so I look at all markets. And I have to say that the way I see the world right now, um, gold, gold assets have the best risk reward of any, of any asset class or any market. 
out there at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. and, and largely that's because of the uh, global monetary policy. It, policies actually a misnomer. Uh, let's put policy in quotes. Uh, global monetary policy at the moment, QE infinity, um, is, is exceptionally positive uh, for gold, in my view. And, you know, I can make a case for why the broad market, the S&P, might do well. But it's not, it's not as one-sided a case as it is for gold. So, so gold overwhelmingly is, is the best asset to me. And, you know, I, I like the gold stocks because they have the ability to give you leverage. And if you look at those slides just, just briefly, this slide goes all the way back to 2001 when the bull market started. And even though we're definitely off the bottom, Gold stocks um, are still are still at the lower, you know, the bottom half, just in terms of price. And you know, the last time gold stocks were this low was back in 2005, when mm -hmm. the gold price was uh, what half what it is today. So, other things being equal, the gold stocks should be much higher today than they were back in the mid 2000s. So, by price they are definitely um, uh, cheap. Price, of course, is not the most important thing, but it's something to look at. The, the, and, and, and we sometimes forget, it's been a long bear market, we sometimes forget just how high gold stocks can go and, and frankly, how overvalued they can get once the bull market stops, because mm -hmm. it is a very small market. I mean, I think Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, they gain or lose in one day a market cap that is equal to the market cap of every gold stock in the world. So it's a, it's a small market. The second thing I would say is, okay, so gold stocks are cheap in terms of price. Relative to gold, which is obviously an important factor, but relative to gold, they are very, very undervalued. And that the second graph, uh, uh, again, yeah. back to 2001, you can see how for the first several years up until 2008 and the credit crisis, gold and gold stocks moved more or less in tandem. This has mm -hmm. been adjusted so that um, uh, stocks obviously had leverage. They were going up you know, at a multiple of gold, but they moved in tandem up and down. And that was broken really with the credit crisis, when the gold stocks fell more than gold, and then really after the peak 2012-13, when the gold stocks have significantly underperformed gold. So this is the widest gap, the widest gap between gold and gold stocks. Uh, 2015, the end of 2015 was, 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 was the same. But those two are the widest gap between gold and gold stocks that we've ever seen. So what do you, um, what do you attribute this, this lag to? Good question. Um, a couple of things. I think, um, I think, first of all, it is a lot, lot if, if you think back to 2001 and before, it was, if someone was interested in buying gold, an investor, it was really quite difficult or cumbersome, let's say, 
to buy physical gold. You, you, you could buy a one ounce coin, that was no problem mm -hmm. with a high premium. But if you wanted to buy, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars worth of gold, it, it was cumbersome to buy, you had to get it assayed, you had to find a place to store it. And so most people, most investors who were interested in gold automatically bought gold stocks. With the development of, uh, with, the, with the advent of gold ETFs, um, ironically, GLD, the most popular, uh, was, was um, uh, promoted by the World Gold Council, which is an amalgamation of the world's leading gold mining companies. Um, and so they have sort of, um, uh, oh dear, I can only think of, a, of an unpleasant expression, which I won't use on air. But they, they've, they've undercut themselves own, to a degree, you know, yeah. They've undercut themselves, thank you, yeah. But anyway, with the advent of gold ETFs, an investor could now say, you know what, I don't have the time or energy to follow all these gold stocks, let's just buy gold, let's buy a gold ETF. And right. so the valuations of the gold stocks which used to be across the board extreme, you know, like gold stocks would be selling at 60, 70, 80 times earnings and four or five times book value. The valuation started to come down to more normal levels. I think the second factor that sort of goes along with that is that the gold companies have actually not been good investments. Uh, they've not been good investments. You look at Barrick or Newmont, they are the same price today. Barrick is the same price today, but it was in 1986. So the long-term investor who bought Barrick has made no money over 40 years or 35 years. And the XAU as a whole is more or less the same price today as it was in the mm. mid-80s. Yeah. So first of all, investors have looked and said, well, you know what? I haven't actually made any money in these gold stocks. Let's just buy gold. And then the other thing, particularly following 2012-13, they looked at gold companies that were really, um, really just, just doing stupid things, overpaying for marginal assets. I mean, you, you, you're probably too young, but in 2012-13, there were tens, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on acquisitions. Within three years, are you, within three years, 75% of the money that had been invested in 2012 and 13 was written off. Not written down, written off. So 75% just disintegrated overnight. Just went to money head. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it was a symptom of, well, if you say, if you're a resource investor, whether you're a company or you're an investor, you have to, you have to be counter-cyclical. You cannot be a pro-cyclical investor and make a lot of money. That means you have to be a contrarian, which means you have to buy when things look really, really cheap. But on the other hand, you want to be when things look really, really expensive. And the gold mining companies with a few notable exceptions like Frank and Nevada or Nigo Eagle with a few notable exceptions, they were massively spending money right at the top. And, and the reason given was because that's what our investors wanted us to do. 
Yeah, get ounces um, on the balance sheet, I guess, was sort of the uh, mentality exactly, at that time. Just get it? bigger, buy, yeah. you know, golds, golds of 1900 is obviously going to 3000 you know, better buy now while it's still available. Yeah. But the problem so, is a lot, of those, yeah, yeah. a lot of those marginal deposits, they didn't make money at 1900 They certainly don't make money now, and they probably won't make money at 3000 either. You know, sometimes yeah. a marginal asset is just a marginal asset. So, so anyway, at that time, at that time in 2012, I was actually working in Mongolia, uh, building open pit mines, and we were oh. I was contractor, and we were contracted by juniors, by majors, and I can tell you that some of the projects that uh, many, many millions of dollars were poured into were never going to make any money. It wasn't gold we were mining, or looking, or we were working on, but you know we were seeing this across the space in general. Things that wouldn't even get you know. Uh, 30 second review today, we're having tens of millions of dollars poured into them. Uh, so that was exactly, my actual exactly. introduction to and the I mining industry, a, which yeah. I thought was a, oh. uh, I thought it was a great job because we, as a mining engineer, we were getting thrown uh, tremendous salaries at us right out of school. Um, and because the industry was so desperate to, to, to fill these needs. And, uh, you know, that all came crashing down as you, as you well summarized very shortly thereafter. Sure, sure, sure. And I think what a lot of people, a lot of people make a mistake. There's obviously some mines that don't make money at, uh, you know, 1500 that will make decent money at 1800 But But for every one of those mines, there's a mine that is marginal, and it's just a marginal mine. It might be metallurgy, it might be whatever. But it's, you know, it's not going to make money at 2000 It's not going to make money at 2500 Yeah. So they're just plain marginal well, properties. So anyway, that's the when you look at these when you look at these major gold companies, so many of them are built on the back of one or maybe two if they're lucky, phenomenal assets that just prints money. Uh, and then the rest of their portfolio is barely breaking even. You know, mediocre mediocre assets that add no value. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's like they find that one mine, they happen upon it, and then they use it to balloon the company, but they're not actually adding any value. Maybe this explains why a, why a Barrick or a Newmont is trading, has been trading at the same levels for 40 years. No, absolutely. And, you know, in some ways, the old South African model, um, now you're definitely too young to remember this, but you may know, but, you know, in South Africa in the 60s, 70s, you had four four major mining houses who sponsored individual mines and each mine was in its own company. And so that, 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 that mine was in one company. Um, it was obviously a depleting asset. They paid out all of the cash flow X capital X cap uh, ongoing CapEx. They paid it all out as dividends. So the dividends tended to be high, but eventually the companies wound up because the mine uh, ran out of ore and they closed the mine company out of business. And in some ways that was a better model because you were buying a particular mine, you were getting a return and as an investor, you were getting a return. Uh, now you had to avoid the trap of course of seeing, you know, Blybortain, the 25% dividend. I think I'll buy that, but without realizing it's only got one year left. But, but in some ways, I think that was a better model. The idea now is 
these companies obviously are, are company, ongoing companies, they're companies in perpetuity. And so they have to continue to produce ounces. No company wants to shrink, right? I mean, is, is, is Barry going to stand up and say, you know, we've gone from 5 million ounces to 7.5, but our five-year goal is to shrink to 4 million ounces. No, of course not. And if they did, people wouldn't be interested in buying the company. So there's that natural incentive to, to if not grow, to at least stay the same. And as you say, that means because they can't find that number of ounces every year, right? They cannot find that number of new ounces. They have to make acquisitions. And the acquisitions tend to be expensive. And as you say, I mean, we've seen it over and over again. Barrett's a perfect example with Goldstrike. They dilute the original great asset. Yeah, yeah. good point. So, so what direction does this go, right? When, when these companies are producing millions and millions of ounces a year, you know, we're not, uh, we're not discovering millions of ounces per year, let alone building out a proper resource, let alone putting something through development. Are we looking at a, you know, a true exploration bull market coming up on us? Are we going to see uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars flood into the exploration space to try to replace what we're, what we're very quickly depleting? Well, I don't know about the billions, but I think we're definitely, I mean, I think that's definitely one result. As you know, an awful lot of the large gold companies do not have any exploration divisions. Mm-hmm. The only exploration they do is brownfields, which is around existing mines, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's by its nature, it's limited, or tends to be limited. Um, so very few of the big companies actually have exploration arms and they use the junior exploration companies kind of as their as their exploration arms and uh, you know it comes and goes but um you know we 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 had a big phase where most of the seniors were doing joint ventures on particular properties now it seems the trend is more towards a company saying gee i like that property but that those people have but instead of doing a JV, let's, you know, take 10% of a company or 15% right. of a company. And then, you know, we like the people, we like what the work they're doing. And if this project doesn't work out, we still have exposure to the company. And we're first, you know, we've got a seat at the table if, if, they, want to, if they want to sell it. So you'll a bit more of that. But I mean, I think we have to see that. One, one of the things that's happened, just to, you know, uh, I won't say step back, just move to the side a second. One of the things that's definitely happened in the last couple of years is the big companies say they found religion. And, you know, we had a huge turnover in 1415, as you know, of the, of the management of the gold mining companies that was there in 2012-13. You know, most of them, an awful lot of them were fired. The new people have come in, cleaned book, cleaned house, um, you know, reduced debt, uh, and said, you know, our focus is on, um, our focus is not on ounces, it's on profitable ounces. You've heard that so many times. We're only going to look at our minds that make money. I think to some, I, I think this phase will, I mean, these companies mean it, there's no question about that, and I think it will last a certain period of time. I'm a cynic. You see gold at 2,500 and everybody thinking it's going to 5,000. 
they will forget all about this discipline, guaranteed. But for now, it's definitely it's definitely a a a, a prime focus. With with so, that in mind, and you've and you've seen sorry, you've seen the no premium mergers. That's been a little bit of a trend. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's only so many companies out there that you can buy, and they're not all worth buying. Uh, with a lot of them, there's no synergy to the acquirer. And so companies, I think, are going to have to put money into juniors to find new ounces. It's the only way. So let's talk for a second about what you guys are focused on. You know, we've seen this run uh, in the gold miners over the last few weeks from their lows in mid-March. Some of them are up 30%, 50%. Some of them are approaching doubles now. Um, do you think investors who are interested in exposure to gold should still be looking at the majors, should still be looking at uh, perhaps royalty companies, or is it time to start moving down uh, the food chain a little bit and looking at development companies or single asset producers or maybe even explorers? Yeah, well, a little bit of both. Um, I mean, when, when gold goes to 18, 19, 2000, you know, the seniors still have plenty of room to move. Now, yes. um, you know, you look at a company like, well, I mentioned Barrick. Um, Barrick's not the best example because, of course, it's been a, it's been a lousy investment for a long time. But, you know, it's at, it's at what, $27 today. 2012, it was at $60. So, um, and it's not as though they spun off a lot of assets or anything like that. And you could look at, you could look at most of the senior companies and see how, you know, in, in 2011, 12, 13, it was, the prices were significantly higher than they are today. And, and my first graph showed that, right? How the, 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 the gold yes. stocks are, are down. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so if we get a, 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 a solid gold bull market for the next, you know, two, three years, the senior stocks are definitely going to do well, in my view. No question about that. Um, I, I'm I'm hesitant to chase them this week, right? <laughs> because of the move yeah, we've had. Of course. I can't help thinking gold is set for a little bit of a correction, frankly. But I mean talking on a talking on a multi month and multi year view, the seniors have a long way further to go. I think there's and that goes for the large cap royalty companies as well. There's, there's better value in some of the intermediate or smaller producers and the single asset companies. But if you're buying a single asset company, I think you really have to do a lot more homework than if you're buying, um, you know, uh, if you're buying Barrick or Franco Nevada, yeah, for example. Um, because you're partly buying that single asset company hoping there'll be a takeover. So you've got to have some you've got to have some knowledge, some um, expertise, and some knowledge, but that is a really good project that you're, that you're buying into. Um, but certainly the, the junior producers, I mean, B2 Gold would be a good example. That's not a single asset one, of course. But the, the intermediate producers and the single asset companies, I think, are a good place to look. And then, you know, we, we are buying the juniors, the exploration companies. I, I think it's going to be a little while yet before the exploration companies, other than those that make a big discovery, um, I think it's going to be a little while before that group of stocks as a whole 
moves in any meaningful way, but there is no question that there are just some stunning, stunning um, buys in that in that sector. You know, good companies, good balance sheets, good managements, and you know, if, if you're willing to be patient, there's some great buys there. And as we know, when that sector moves, it can move very, very, very strongly. You know, yeah. doubles are, are not at all unusual. Um, so but you, I think, I think that's, sorry. I was going to say, when you're, when you're looking at uh, investing in an exploration company, what are some of the things that you're thinking about? Is it primarily the asset? Is it the management team? Is it a, is it a combination of all these things? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, it's a combination. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a generalist. I'm, I'm, I'm not a geologist, mining engineer, or anything else. And so, um, obviously, an asset or the assets are important, obviously. But that's, that's not my skill set. And so I tend to look at management. Management with, <clears throat> excuse me, with any company I look at, I think the management is important. Even a company like Nestle. The person that's the managing director makes a big difference. And we've seen that even in big companies like Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank or Nestle, how management makes a difference. But the smaller the company, obviously, the more, not obviously, but the smaller the company, the more critical management becomes. So I never invest in a junior um, without getting to know the management. <clears throat> and the good thing is in this space, is it's easy to get to know people. I don't mean necessarily get to know them as friends, but you can you can visit them at the booth, you can have a meeting, you can go to lunch, go to dinner, you can go on a mining trip, you can you can get to know the person and understand how he works and what his values are. And that to mm -hmm. me is critical. The second thing is the balance sheet. The balance sheet, both the cash and the ability to raise money, absolutely critical. And one of the things I always do with new juniors when I'm looking at them is I look back and see what has been the history of share dilution. Uh, you know, when you see a company, this is a real case, but I won't name the stock, I won't name the company. But uh, when you see a company that from 2008 went from 2 million shares outstanding to this year is at 195 million shares outstanding. All right. Now, they found something, they've grown. But when you think about it, that means that they have to have increased value 100-fold just for the stock price to stay where it is. Needless to say, value has increased, but not 100-fold, and needless to say, the stock price is not where it was. So the history of dilution is very important to me. And, and, and there's a lot of things with that. I mean, it's just A is just plain dilution, but the second thing is, when you see a company that every year, and sometimes twice a year, comes out and does a new equity raise, everybody that has any inclination on that company, any, any uh, fault, uh, understands the company at all, knows there's going to be another financing. You know, you mm -hmm. don't buy the company at 80 cents, you just wait till they run out of money and do another financing. So it's bad for the company. It's bad for existing shareholders. Um, I think that's, that's the second thing that I look at very, very positively. Um, and then just obviously the business plan. And do they have a consistent business plan? Do they actually know what they're doing? And they don't have to be focused. They can be. You know, I like some of the Quebec-focused companies. 
um, because they they are really focused on a particular geology, a particular jurisdiction. They know they know the people in the ministry. They know the land. They know the native leaders. You know, they you really get to know the whole that area, and that's fine. There are other companies that are all over the place. B2 Gold mentioned is another example. They've done extremely well, incidentally, with their sort of, um, you know, in working with local communities and working with governments. But, you know, it doesn't have to be a focus, but you want to know that the company has a game plan. I don't want to invest in something that's a, a, a prospect generator in British Columbia and it didn't work out. So next year they're in Mali going for copper and the year after that they're growing cannabis in California. Right, you know, you want right, a company yeah. that's stuck, you know, has a model, yeah. <clears throat> so what so are, those are, what are your, the main things I look at. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and that, that mirrors a lot of the things that we look at uh, Resource Insider as well. Assets, management, of course, the structure of the company and how it's been set up. The one thing I, I, I'd like to ask you about is when, when you're managing one of your gold funds, how do you... How do you think an ideal, uh, I guess, gold investment portfolio is structured? Is it, you know, what portion is physical gold versus equities and majors versus equities and juniors or single asset producers? How do you how do you look at breaking that up to get, I, I suppose, not only the best uh, exposure to the space, but also, I would say, exposure to serendipity. So the opportunity for things to go very right and get these, you know, five, ten potentially hundred time right. returns we occasionally see in the, in the junior space? Well, first of all, all, all of our accounts are simply managed. So we might have a person who comes to us and says, look, here's 5% of my total portfolio for gold. You know, I'm a 70 year old man. I don't need to take risk. I just want to be exposed to gold. And the truth is if he gets a 50% return in five years, he is ecstatic. So you don't mm. need to take high risk to, to make him happy. There's other people, you know, at the other extreme who, who really want to maximize the returns they can get from, from the portfolio. So, you know, everybody has different, different objectives. And I think the most important thing for or one of the important things for investors is to actually know your objective and know what you're willing, you know, what, what risk are you willing to take? What losses are you willing to take? And, um, you know, what are you trying to achieve from, from the gold portfolio? Um, I've always thought, I say to a lot of people, look, you don't have to be in the best performing three gold stocks in order to do well. When gold goes from 1600 to 2000, you know, you'll be perfectly happy if, if you own, and I'll just say Barrick and Agnigo and Franco and Wheaton, and they may not be the best performers, but the vast majority of investors will be very, very happy with that. Yeah. So I've often thought that you don't need to take more risk than you really want to, that you really understand. <coughs> I mean, we, we divide, we divide our, our portfolio. We have a large exposure to the royalty companies because I think the royalty companies have a very good risk-reward profile. They have, a, as a business model, they have a much lower risk and certainly than, than uh, the single asset uh, mining company or the exploration company. And so you can get exposure to gold and the upside to gold, uh, but at, at more modest risk. 
and you also have the diversification. So a company, again, I keep mentioning Franco, that's just because it's the largest. A company like Franco has revenue now from about 36 different uh, resource projects, as well as, of course, the oil revenue that they have. And then mm. they have a pipeline of non-producing royalties that is over 350 right now. So, but just look at the producers. They've got exposure to most of, or an awful lot of, uh, of the major world-class assets. They've got exposure in many countries in, in the Americas, and they've got exposure to many, to all, really, to all of the uh, large mining companies as, as, as uh, counterparties. So you get broad diversification by buying the one company. So we mm -hmm. like the big royalties. I definitely want to be exposed to the producers. Again, with the producers, you have to you have to look at: Are you looking at uh, the lowest risk producers, or are you looking at the most leveraged producers? And the irony in a in a in a resource uh, investment is true of gold. The irony is that often the stocks that will do best particularly at the beginning of a bull market, are the most leveraged, which means they have the highest amount of debt and the highest cost. But because of the high debt and the high costs in a bull market, they have the most leverage. So right. the irony is that sometimes what I'll call the bad companies, if you think high costs and leverage are bad, as opposed to the companies with lower costs and less leverage. And so, so you have to decide the, which one am I the reason for, for that. Right? Yeah. So I guess the reason for that to explain to people at home is because if a company, let's call it, it, it costs a thousand dollars an ounce uh, to produce and gold is at $1,100, they're only making a hundred dollars an ounce. But if gold goes to $1,700, they've all, all of a sudden they're making, they're making uh, $700. So they're making seven times more per ounce that they produce. So these things go from being uneconomic to mar or marginally economic to very economic and making a lot of money comparatively very quickly. I guess, is that is that why we see these big swings and these highly levered, uh, sometimes no, poor ab producers? No, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, absolutely. And as an investor, you have to decide, is that what I'm aiming for, knowing full well what I'm buying, knowing full yeah. well that if the market turns, I'm back with a dog on my hands, or am I more comfortable with something less potential, less leverage, but you know, less leverage on the downside as well? Right. Good. So, I mean, so we buy the big seniors, but we're very selective in the seniors we buy. And then we buy uh, some of the juniors, uh, you know, Premier, B2 Gold, I think I can name them. I'm not saying anyone should just go out and buy it because I'm buying because I'm naming it. I'm just saying the sort of companies. But then we also buy, we also buy, you know, exploration companies. And we have more exploration companies because clearly you put less money into any one than you right. do into a Frank or Barrick, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. Uh, well, Adrian, we're coming up on time now, and I, I want to be respectful. I know you've got a busy day. Um, is there anything else that investors should be thinking about at this time? Uh, you know, things have changed a lot, even in the last few weeks. There's a lot of ambiguity about what to expect in the future. What should investors be thinking about in terms of 
positioning themselves to ride out this storm associated with COVID and, okay. and get exposure to precious metals? Well, a couple of things, if I may. Yes, don't think you've missed the market. I think those of us who've been around the gold market for five or six years, who've been extremely disciplined and patient and, you know, waiting to buy something at $11.20 instead of $11.30, I think to some extent that kind of thinking has to go out the window. If gold goes to 2000 or 2500 you won't actually care whether you bought Barrick at $27 or $29. I'm talking U.S. dollars. <clears throat> you won't care at that point. The second thing I'll mention, if I may, in conclusion, is if you look at that last graph that I sent you, it says gold outperformed. Yep, you know, I'll if you look back to 2008 and the credit crisis, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it sometimes rhymes, as Mark Twain said. You look at the gold stocks are actually the black line. The S&P is the yellow line for some perverse reason. But you look how the gold stocks from July, they created far more than did the S&P. They went down over 80%, the gold stocks, right? 80% in three months. And I'm talking yeah. about the, the, big, the big companies, not the penny stocks. The important thing to look at is the gold stocks bottomed way before the S&P, before the broad market did. And by the time the broad market had bottomed in March 2009, the gold stocks had already doubled. They had already doubled before the broad market bottomed. But the other thing that's really important, and I want to end on this, if I may, in that period, if you look at the black line from October through to March, you see that the gold stocks ran up while the S&P was still falling. And then they gave back about 70% of that rally. Then they went up mm -hmm. again in, in four days, and then they gave back, you know, 40% of it. Just look at the number of significant pullbacks we had along the way. So first of all, don't get freaked out if the gold stocks pull back by, pull back by 20 or 30 or 40%. Don't think it's all over. Um, and secondly, yeah, be a little bit disciplined waiting for some of these pullbacks. I think we're going to see a, a pullback in the gold stocks, and that'll be our chance to buy. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh, you know, given what's going on in the economy right now, it's hard to think that there won't be, you know, a rush to cash and people pulling money out of it and we'll see a pullback. But, you know, I, uh, when the last, um, you know, the last big pullback we saw in March, I, you know, I had a bunch of cash set aside and I decided to wait and see how it went. And I, you know, basically missed the recovery. I, it happened so much <laughs> faster than I anticipated. <laughs> and I've been, you know, we've been waiting for the right time to go back in. And of course, we've got lots of, I had lots of investments already and I own lots of juniors and what have you. But I have been contemplating and talking to people about the best way to get more exposure to the majors and the big royalty companies. And I, I agree with you. I think uh, I won't, I'm not going to say the worst is yet to come, but I do think we'll see. Uh, I do think we'll see a, a drawback for sure. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Adrian, if people want to learn more about you and what you guys are doing at Adrian day asset management, what's the best place to find you? Well, our website is um, adriandayassetmanagement.com, and all one word, and our email is assetmanagement, one word, at 
adriandave.com. All right. And I can give a phone number if they want as well, which is 410-224-2037. Excellent. Well, Adrian, thank you very much for taking the well, time to chat you. today. And uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. <laughs>